welcome to the Found Cause. We're found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way across the airwaves in virtual lits. Theodore, under the PC, under the person of Christ. And quick, before we start the episode, we need a great thumbnail of reaction faces to Cam and Bertuzzi of capturing Christianity, converting to Catholicism. Here's my reaction face. <laughs> wow, that took a lot of time to process. <laughs> we were practicing it before. Sebastian, that, yeah, we, we got it. That, I think that was a solid one. Okay, so before we get started, thanks for the reaction faces. I'm sure that will go down in Thonkos history. Cameron Bertuzzi, we have reacted to him before. Uh, a lot of people have. We're jumping on the hype train, absolutely. But we are actually genuinely followers of Cameron Bertuzzi's uh, whole whole cycle. It's not just like a one-time thing for us. <laughs> he is the the author, the maker, the face and and heart behind the channel Capturing Christianity. They're far bigger than us, so we're definitely punching up here because we're always punching up because we're tiny. But um, someday we will be huge and <laughs> he will be tiny, and then it will look like we're bullying him. So I just tell you that I'm not trying. And at the outset here, I told these guys, and I had to tell it to myself too, we're not trying to be mean particularly. We just think the the consequences of this kind of conversion, where he converted from Protestantism to Catholicism, are huge. And we, of course, refute Catholicism as being um, true gospel-believing Christianity. So we wanted to give our, our genuine reaction to it just a week afterwards. I think it's two weeks by the time this episode airs, um, to him publicly coming out as Roman Catholic. We want to talk about first the origin of how how this happened, the story behind Capturing Christianity and why this was a long time coming and why we reacted to him in the first place on this very issue, um, why others have too. And then we want to talk about what finally convinced him, supposedly according to his own words during his live stream, um, these two faithful men watched it. Um, Sebastian was giving live updates uh, via Facebook Messenger <laughs> that were hot and heavy, whole cl uh, issue close to Sebastian's heart. And we'll end with with the what now so now that he's converted like what's the consequences of this what hasn't he thought through and if you are a viewer at home who knows somebody <laughs> who is catholic or who is dappling with Catholicism or even other sects of quote-unquote christianity um how do you react to that is it appropriate to be strong mm -hmm. against it how, how should you react to it is it something that's important we'll talk about it so first things first and maybe one of you guys want to start when you first saw capturing christianity um if you can think back to the time periods. Who is capturing Christianity prior to the Catholic question? But zero, uh, zero things zero before first things first. Uh, he's not technically converted yet. Is this true? They pushed it out to Easter or around Easter. Okay. Well, so the confirmation. By the grace mean... of God, there's still time. Right. So he's converted, but not confirmed. Mm -hmm. So oh. there is still time. The marriage has not yet happened. My bad. In any case, the first time I ever saw Capturing Christianity, maybe it'll jog your guys' memory, was he was doing a debate with a Catholic. So it was on the Catholic side of things. And it was about two years ago, I believe, where he did a debate with his now buddy. Um, I th this could be wrong. I could be misremembering the first time I saw him. But I think he was debating Matt Fratt of Pints with Aquinas. And the debate really was just a... a ask Matt Fried what he believes, and then Cameron Bertuzzi will go, uh-huh, that's interesting, uh-huh. And he never really defended Protestantism. So already from the get-go, from my first thing I saw him, I was like, oh, this is a dumb channel. Like a lot of the other ones that, that I see, like Inspiring Philosophy, we've reacted to him as well. Super vague, barely Christian. They call it near Christianity, where you are Christian, but you're not really going to use the Bible for anything. You're really just going to talk about whatever you want to. Um, we are sometimes guilty of that on the found cause, but we try to base things in the Bible, and we will try today as well. 
but that's just a, a baseless Christian is is very dangerous. So when you see a baseless Christian talking with a mm-hmm. based um, non-Christian, like the Catholic, Matt, Matt Frad, you know they're in trouble. And that's why we try to do podcasts like this and other podcasters do is to prepare Christians who would otherwise be baseless, uh, not ready for attacks, avoid becoming a Cameron Bertuzzi, where you are captured by somebody who has a reason behind their belief, and then you think they are right just because they have defended themselves when others couldn't. So that was the first time I saw Cameron. Have you guys seen him in other contexts? Like, supposedly he did stuff that was non-Catholic related before. I've seen him do collabs with collaborations with other channels. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly dialogue that I saw between uh, and also interviews. So, and in many of those cases, the interviews didn't really give much pushback that from what I recall. So I've, I've, I've seen the moving away from partisanism for, for a while. Do you remember when you first saw him, Theodore? He seems kind of like, you're the most philosophical of us all. Um, did you see him like for one of his like philosophy videos? Because I think I saw him through Inspiring Philosophy. Inspiring Philosophy quoted him or did a collaboration mm-hmm. with him, and that's how I found him. Yeah, I've watched a uh, many random things of his. I guess probably one of the most recent ones though was the Exorcist one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm almost done with like a one take series on Christian exorcisms. Interesting. Okay. Um, I've seen that. A response to that thing, but I haven't finished that yet. <clears throat> well, in any case, as you can tell, he's, by the way, we found him all. He's just one of several general Christianity, usually built on collaboration videos where he brings people on to interview. And so I think the name Capturing Christianity comes into like, like fully capturing what Christianity is from all the different perspectives. There are a couple channels like this. Some of them have really high production value. Um, Capturing Christianity has a decent one. Like he has got a good camera setup Mm -hmm. and background and he gets guests on regularly. So clearly it takes some effort here. Um, He doesn't go into, there's that one channel that I really don't like. Have we done a reaction to it? I don't think so. Where like a Protestant goes into like an Eastern Orthodox church and he's like, oh, wow. Oh man. Oh, wow. And Oh, is that gospel simplicity or the 10 minute Bible hour? I think it's Something 10 minute like Bible hour. Yes. Gospel simplicity we did react to, and he's he does collabs just like uh uh Caption Christianity. Yes, 10 minute Bible hour. He does give pushback in the interviews with the mm. people he agrees with, so I'll, I'll I will defend him <laughs> in this case. But I can't really pin him down on exactly what he believes. In any case, yeah, 10 minute Bible hour. Um I wouldn't be surprised if he converts at some point either. But um what? a little bit. No, oh, I no, think he's a pretty good solid. Okay, well, mm-hmm. you guys Honestly. know better than me. I think I've seen like one or yeah. two episodes. In any case, Captain Christianity is in the, in the vein of all these. Here he was in the vein of all these channels where he is hoping to show his viewers uh, different views of Christianity. I think in like an ecumenical sense, that's probably what he went that's into That's the it. word ecumenism. Yeah. That's the word. Where he's trying to ecumenism, meaning like all the churches, one church. So Catholics and, and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox and whoever else were all Christians at the base. And so like... It's neat and fun to hear what other churches believe, but they are still Christians and therefore you can pal around with them. Um, That's dangerous because they aren't fellow Christians. It's like talking to Mormons and palling around with Jehovah's Witnesses and whoever else. You need to be careful um, because they're not actually Christians. If you want to know our full justifications for that, we'll probably talk about it at the end of this episode. But 
we have many videos on Catholics. Um, but that was the dangerous, I think, principles that Capturing Christianity started out as with some like general mere Christianity channel. Um, it was setting out to do some apologetics against atheism as well, but it quickly got derailed by all the different sects, quote unquote, of Christianity, particularly Catholicism, clearly. Um, so that's the story is that he started out as this kind of channel. He would be able to tell it better than us, of course, but he gained 150,000 subscribers over the course of making these videos. He's got decent production value. He got good guests on good collaboration material. It's probably what we need to do to grow if we wanted to, uh, <laughs> outside of God's grace. And so he did all that. He grew pretty fast, not the biggest channel out there, but not the smallest. And he said himself most recently, He'd been having all these conversations with Matt Fratt of Pints of Aquinas, another successful channel, but this one pointed around Catholicism and, and speaking with other people of faith, but always defending strongly Catholicism. Mm -hmm. um, I say strongly in air quotes because he's got his own weaknesses. He's kind of a squishy Catholic, but he's much less squishy than um, his content with the people he was interviewing. He was much more of an advocate for the Catholic Church, a guy out of Australia, Matt Fratt. And so that collaboration was the most friendly of the ones that that Cameron Pertuzzi had done to that point and they continued to talk and Matt Fred clearly had a, a kindred soul with Cameron they they got together he flew out to America and they met up physically and they became friends and of course the whole time Matt Fred is trying to convert Cameron Cameron is not really trying to convert Matt Fred and so the one way push finally made it that combined with it sounds like he says in his live stream um, that they're running a $3,000 a month deficit. It puts stress on you, um, means the whole like, full-time YouTuber thing must not be making that much money. Uh, so therefore, it is a risk to convert, but it's not a huge risk to your business because you're already apparently short so much money. Um, in any case, he's now saying he's converted. He came out um, from the time of this recording last week and said that he's officially converted and that uh, like leave his family alone. I don't think his wife is converted. So he himself has decided to do this. There's still time, of course, like Theodore said to back out. There always is time to come back to Christ. Um, but we want to talk about what exactly supposedly converted him from his own words and talk about why that's not good enough and how to, if you, if you yourself are dabbling with other sects or religions or whatever else, how to think critically about the things that are convincing you. And then two, if you know people that are dabbling with things, what to challenge them on. Because the typical attack vectors at Catholicism are not usually the things that convert people to Catholicism. They don't usually get converted because of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That's, a, that's an attack vector against Catholicism and why it's wrong. Um, but that's not usually what converts people. Usually what converts people are the things that Cameron talks about. So I think it's a good uh, case study in, in what it looks like to convert. And with that said, I want to pass it. I've been talking a lot. I want to pass it to, to Sebastian. There's a lot of passion on this project. He watched the full live stream, I think, at least a good portion of it. I did not. And yeah. uh, so, Sebastian, how, why, what were the reasons Cameron gave for conversion? Yes. Interjection. A quick fact check. Uh, <laughs> Matt Fred lives in Ohio. Oh, does he actually? Well, he yeah. is. I think he's from Australia, Australia, but he lives in Ohio. Wow. Well, then it wasn't even that big of a travel. <laughs> Steubenville, Ohio. Okay. Thanks. Good enough. So I've he is here. That sometimes on his. Yep. We could interview him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is what I was able to gather. I was taking notes, and if I miss anything, please put it in the comments below, and we can tackle the topic. But 
What Cameron mentioned that really convinced him out of all the topics that they mentioned in the interview in Rome with St. Peter's Basilica in the background and having wine. So that was a great, great setup, I have to say myself. <laughs> wow, much values, yeah. Yes, and it was the papacy. So he did a whole analysis. I think you guys are talked about it more than me exactly on the analysis that was done and what really got him down to the difference with other denominations like the Eastern Orthodox for example was the papacy is what makes Catholicism uh, stand out and it's the make it or break it pretty much yeah in, in his mind and I'll insert myself in maybe theater you went to too because I was saying before this podcast even aired um, I was calling it the wrong type of analysis because I really don't care, but theater corrected me. It's called Bayesian analysis from Bayes, um, some philosopher of some sort, I'm sure. Maybe a mathematician. I don't really know. Um, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In any case, it, the, what I gathered was it's a grid. You make a grid for yourself and you decide all the different points that are keeping you from believing that the Pope is the Pope. Um, and then you decide how probable each one of these points is to be wrong. So, for example, you might say... There's a 10%, he, he, he himself, Cameron, said there was like some 10% chance that um, Peter wasn't the first pope. He wasn't given full authority. And therefore, and then you combine all the, the probabilities and you weigh them and then the probabil probabilities change as you're exposed to more evidence and eventually you decide the, it's more probable that the thing you're fighting is um, true than it is not true or vice versa. You decide that it's less probable than it is. And so that's called Bayesian analysis, some Bayesian chance matrix. Um the uh, I think the obvious flaws with that approach is it sounds very mathematical and logical, except that you are the arbiter of all your own probabilities. And so it's really just a way of tracking your own thoughts, um, your own heart, your own feelings, because there's no there's no math, there's no raw data you can plug in to get a particular percentage of how likely something is to be true, um, except for your own feelings on it. So it's basically just a feelings tracker, which really isn't logical at all. It's just how you feel. Are you convinced? That's, you know. It doesn't take a Bayesian analysis to figure out whether or not you are convinced. It's just a good way of jotting down all the different points. And so he did this Bayesian analysis on the papacy. And once he concluded mathematically that the papacy was more likely than not, he officially was converted. Interesting. <laughs> and what's interesting on that one, too, is I would just finish saying that, that the, he wasn't converted by attack vectors against Catholicism, except we attack the papacy all the time. So it seems like a weird point to convert on. Um, but I guess that's why he was having so much trouble with it until he finally decided it was true. In any case, that was one of his many points, right? But what do you have to say about the papacy? It is a very, very uh, dangerous insertion that Catholicism has done because some might say the Pope is a very nice and gentle fellow nowadays, Pope Francis. He probably is a very nice guy to talk to. However... If you go back in time, the popes were very violent men. They were also very lewd and didn't shy from having affairs and letting people know about them, like the Borgia popes, for example, or have people assassinated or embezzle money. All the reason I'm saying this is because this isn't something to be taken lightly. When you go into Catholicism, for Cameron specifically, if you want to take it seriously and fully embrace what the Mother Church teaches, there is a proclamation from 1302 called Unam Sanctam, like one holy apostolic church in Latin. People quote this to us in the comments, actually. It's so pretty famous. Yeah. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, a.k.a. 
the Pope. So again, high stakes. You can also see why this was a sticking point for him, because as a channel that talked to all the different sects of Christianity, whether they were truly Christian or not, um, this was a sticking point, a plain sticking point, where even the most gentle, squishy Roman Catholic needs to put his foot down, because Roman Catholicism is an exclusive religion, and it is not a Christian religion, it is exclusive, i.e. it excludes other sects based on its history, based on its violent past against Protestantism, against Eastern Orthodoxy, um, as much as the current Pope is a universalist and believes that <laughs> Jews and Muslims are also saved and worship the same God and blah, 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 um, the religion itself is very exclusive, mm -hmm. and the symbol of that exclusivity is the Pope himself, because if you don't submit to the Pope, you supposedly aren't saved, as you just read from Unum Sanctum, and so... That is the the key distinguishing feature of Catholicism that makes it exclusive from Eastern Orthodoxy or Protestantism or whatever other squishy groups you're talking to. And so that was what I'm sure what challenged Cameron was that he was willing to make every little other sect like have its good things and its bad things. But this was one that was like a claim to exclusivity and challenged him. Yes. And did any word stand out at the end? Something that's necessary for something? Salvation. Wow, I thought it, Christ alone and his sacrifice was just enough for my salvation. Well, you got to submit to the Pope. I mean, that's just obvious. Okay. That's that um, the something in the dragon book six. Haven't you read that? I have not. Oh, it's not in your Protestant Bible because I don't want you to believe it. I'm just kidding. It's not in whatever that. <laughs> I'm forgetting the, the words now. Whatever. Whoever in the dragon. Um, Bell and the dragon. Bell and the dragon. It's, that classic. It's not, yeah, it's not there, but sure. Yeah. Be, we're, I don't. We're not even going to talk about the extra <laughs> yeah. books of the Bible that they, that they have. That they were not. We have talked about this in another episode. How they were the Bible that we have, Protestants have, and how popes have also argued for that same Bible have did not have rejected um, the Apocrypha, and same also with Cardinal Cayetan, who when the guy who questioned Luther, he also rejected the Apocrypha. So it's not just us saying this. It is actual ordained. Roman Catholics, cardinals and popes were crying out loud who have rejected the Apocrypha. Regardless, we're going to talk about that, but rather, I think it might be worthwhile to tackle and deal with one of the claims that Catholics use for the papacy, like how this is something we should take seriously. It's not just our invention. It's not just some random pope, Boniface, who tried to think he was king of the universe or the world back in the 1300s, which he did, and um, it's from the Bible. I want, to, I want to quote it because it gets often quoted by Roman Catholics from Isaiah 22. It's a foreshadowing, and this will tie into what, something we talk about later in the podcast. It is a foreshadowing of the office of Peter. And as we get into that, they say that Jesus gave the keys to Peter, hence why the papal symbol is two crossed keys, because of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. To, to bind people to hell and to unlock people to heaven. Yes, yes. yes. It's a quote from, from the Gospels where Jesus says that to Peter because he mm -hmm. says that you are the Lord, um, Son of the living God. And he says, yeah, this is the rock on which I will build the church. Speaking of the words that Peter said, not, of course, Peter. He calls Peter the rock because he spoke the words that were the rock. And then he says to all the disciples, I gave to you the keys to the kingdom. Right. As he repeats to them later in Matthew, at least, because I know that the chapter, mm -hmm. he repeats to all the disciples that they all have the keys. I, I say to you that you have the, the keys to the kingdom again. So in a totally separate context, not to Peter, he says the same thing. Clearly, this mm -hmm. is to all the disciples, I think. Um, but Catholics say it's just to Peter because they had a hope and they wanted some way to justify that he was the sole apostle and ruler. 
Right, and the Pope didn't just doesn't just bind people to heaven or, or hell, but also he had, was a political figure. He uh, had a administrative function within the church hierarchy. There were good popes, there were terrible popes, there were evil popes of all kinds. But they did more than just being a pastor at a church. They were a pretty much a king during the Middle Ages. So how did they justify? They justified by citing Isaiah twenty-two, and this is maybe fresh to both of you, Theodore and Michael. So reading from the verse, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. The key. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will dry him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat or throne of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. That's what they quote? Yes. Okay, for context, I had heard they were, Sebastian was talking about this thing, and Cameron talked about the Eliakim thing, and I even heard James White, when he reacted to Cameron's conversion, um, talk about this and, and throw it off. I'd never even heard this approach. I know that that verse because it's about Eliakim, who um, Shebna, the current court official, was snubbing, clearly, I think, from context in Isaiah. And so God says that Shebna will instead be, be rejected and that Eliakim, the, the priest that they were all trying to push down, was instead going to be given all this glory. The, I think, clearly is a contemporary person. Eliakim is a contemporary person in uh, King Hezekiah's time. King Hezekiah has court officials, and so this is God anointing a court official, just like in like Zephaniah and some of the, the later prophets, um, when they come back from Babylon, he specifically anoints particular people because he wants them to be strong and courageous, just like Joshua. There's a another guy named Joshua um, who was a priest at the time. Um, he gives all these like special <laughs> things, and Zephaniah sees a vision of of uh, Joshua being clothed in, in good robes and God giving very similar... Um, blessings on joshua to found a good tradition and be a good priest there for the lord so it seems like the exact same kind of thing but they say it is about the pope yes because don't you see the word keys is in I, there i do see the word keys and the that, throne that, that, like, that was the they put control f on their keyboard search the bible for keys and they found that one i got it yes do you think this justifies the papacy theater I'm going to have to perform a Bayesian analysis. <laughs> <laughs> you got to set up a couple squares on the Excel sheet and then um, slowly day by day increase them by one percentage point until you are convinced. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So I would set my percentage of believing it at currently 0%. We'll see how it increases. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I understand. Let me give it its fair shot. I understand that there are many double fulfillments in the Bible. For example, um, Isaiah himself speaks about uh, a child is born to us of the virgin, right? And that is speaking about his own wife giving birth to a son that God tells him a particular name to name that son and also foreshadowing Christ coming from a virgin. Great. Um, that's double fulfillment. So I could see Eliakim's blessing being a shadow of something to come, except there's no like reason to believe that. There, there's no apostolic authority telling us that that's the case like there is for Isaiah's prophecy about the birth of Jesus. 
and then equally there's no context clues there to tell you that this is a shadow of something to come it also doesn't sound particularly unique in that like i just said zephaniah it gives a blessing to joshua who's a priest at the time um, post exile that sounds the exact same i don't think it has keys in it but i mean that's just uh, allegorical use of the word keys yes and i would think that something as important as the office of the spiritual the vicar of christ on earth would have been spelled out in the bible as being clearly, fulfilled yeah. such as the book of hebrews in which it the writer i will stake i'll stake here in my my claims here it's luke who wrote it and a lot of people disagree with that for whatever reason but um uh, he's the the writer luke specifies that the old is passing away because christ has created something new like there's no need for the priesthood there's no need for the old sacrifices because there's one ultimate sacrifice you would think that if all of the temple stuff is being done away with the priesthood which the roman clergy copied out of a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, once the Christian church became more Gentile and pushed away all the Jews outside, they misunderstood the Old Testament and replicated a lot of the things from the temple sacrifices and the priesthood and whatnot. So you would think the Bible would, oh yeah, there's going to be this very important figure that's going to lead the church and people after him, after the Messiah shows up. It's like, what's the expression? Grasping for straws? Is that there? Yeah. Like when they say Mary is foreshadowed in the Ark of the Covenant or in uh, the Ark of Noah, when salva she brings salvation because, you know, humanity enters the Ark and then likewise Mary brings forth the Messiah like Noah and his family exiting the Ark mm -hmm. after the flood. And then like, well, that sounds all well and good, but does the Messiah, God himself, speak on that? I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, maybe I missed something. So, so I should ask... Oh. What's the lesson to be learned here? So this is one of the reasons he converted. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons it was his final reason. He made one, yeah. Um, that he converted was the papacy, and he was convinced. He quotes this Eliakim passage as being one of the convincing things. I would assume it was not one thing. It was this this overarching meta-narrative attack to say that um, here's a little bit from Eliakim, here's a little bit from Jesus telling Peter that he's got the keys to the kingdom, um, here's the, the philosophical need for one ruler of the church, and here's the shadows and the archetypes and whatever else, building this big meta-narrative about the Bible that isn't from Scripture, it's outside of Scripture, that says that the Scripture necessitates and predestines the Pope to be coming. Um, what's the lesson we can learn from that? How do we avoid doing that ourselves? Or how do we convince others um, who are being trapped by similar meta-narratives, whether it's about the papacy or it's about um, how Adam and Eve aren't real? I mean, there's many ways meta-narratives are used. How do we um, combat that? Any, any brilliant ideas, my fellow co-host? Sorry, I had another comment. I was looking up a... Bible verse. Okay, well, let me quickly just interject my answer my own question. <laughs> I, think, I think you have to be very careful how you exegete, how you read the Bible. And I, I believe it is never, and I am going to emphasize that, it is never a proper literary technique. And I do this to people who are on my side all the time, and I, I, I want to keep myself from doing it too. It is never proper exegesis to go outside of the Bible, build a narrative, and then go back into the text and, and say it speaks to that narrative. When, when that narrative you just built is not even in a different book, it's nowhere. So for example, on the Adam and Eve thing, a lot of people build a meta-narrative where they say that the important meta-narrative of creation is that God created and that he created man and that somebody else didn't create man and blah, blah, blah. And therefore, 
Genesis, even though it says that Adam and Eve were made 6,000 years ago and everything else, they weren't really because of this outside narrative that I've just imposed on the text. You cannot do that. The only time you can do that is if you have another piece of scripture that you know this piece of scripture fits into. For example, there are times in the Gospels where somebody will say that Jesus went to the temple once and then another one says he went twice and you have to impose them on each other to figure out the truth, which is that he went twice and one of the Gospels only quotes him going once, um, whereas John has him going in the beginning of his ministry and then at the end. Um, that being said, there are many Reformed Christians that do meta narrative things for the sake of revelation. Um, that has a lot of weird meta narrative stuff. I do not like it. I think it's very dangerous. So if you ever encounter a Christian or you yourself are forced to use a meta narrative for the Bible, I think it is at best dubious. Hold that belief lightly, but it is never a proof or reason for conversion. So that's my general rule of thumb is that you cannot, um, impose meta narratives on the text that aren't from the text itself and then demand it's necessary for salvation right i mean you certainly can't build anything off of those for example like you might find it useful to see the types and shadows of how christ fulfills types in the old testament that aren't specifically talked about in hebrews or other old uh, new testament writings you might say um i'm not going to think of one right now but but things that aren't mentioned by the new testament writers that you say oh my gosh that's how christ is fulfilling that that old testament shadow but you can't build off of that because that's just your own weird epiphany. It doesn't have scriptural authority behind it. So um, in the same way, the Pope thing, not only is it not true and a laughable epiphany to have, um, but even if it were a true epiphany, you can't convert based off of it. It's not so, It's not clear enough in the text to be able to convert based off of it. It's like an interesting uh, moment uh, if you think that refers to the Pope just because it talks about keys because keys are just a general way of talking about authority in general so it's not a papal specific authority it's just authority and Eliakim was a high priest so of course he had authority he had keys yeah any so you had a comment Theodore an unrelated comment um well the first one was like um you shouldn't oppose any meta narrative unless it's mine which I've proven right with my feelings of 100% confidence uh-huh. um, but then also uh, <laughs> relating to Sebastian's <clears throat> quoting of Hebrews and like the priesthood, we also got First Peter two nine to ten, which but you are a. This is uh, basically talking to all Christians. You are a chosen race, a ch- chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his one uh, marvelous light. Uh, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you have not, uh, you had not received mercy, but n- now you have received mercy. And then uh, Revelation 5, um, verse 10 um you, Jesus, you have made them into a kingdom of priests to our God. Mm-hmm. And that's generally the principle of the priesthood of all believers. That's what we would call it. And therefore, we should call no person a priest uniquely because all believers are priests. Something the Reformation pushed as well. Yeah. And we know just their simple attack on, on authority in general, um, uh, as far as the church goes, there's only two offices that the church, uh, the Bible gives in the church, and it is elder and deacon. That's it. 
So elder is sometimes transmitted, uh, translated bishop or presbyter or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's the same, it's the same office, elder, presbyter, bishop, whatever you call that. There's bishop, elder, presbyter, and deacon. That's it. There's no head of deacons. There's no head of elders. There's not a chief elder, and there's certainly no pope. So that's all the Bible speaks to. That's all the authority we have to go on. You can build all your structures, uh, but don't hold to them as if they were scripturally based. Like there are many churches, including my own today, that has uh, like a chief executive pastor. Okay, you know, like you can do that, but that's not a biblical position. So don't hold to it as if it is even biblical, let alone necessary for salvation like the Catholics do. Mm-hmm. Can I mention one more thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, again, with that, uh, Jesus says to Peter, you, um, uh, I say to you, uh, you are Peter, and then in a side, and this, or on this rock, and on this rock, yeah, so on the confession, I will build my church. And then Paul uh, kind of says something similar to that in First Corinthians three. Um, he talks about according to the grace of God, which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, which is the confession of Jesus um, Christ, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds, for no man can lay a foundation or a rock, as I would say, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right. And, and I mean, there's so many things to talk about the papacy. It really wasn't a strong argument that convinced Cameron. I'm sure it was one of these meta-narrative things, as, as Matt Pratt and others give. Um, that's why, again, you have to be really careful to um, always base your beliefs on Scripture, not be convinced by the meta-narratives that use Scripture as a ploy. So when they do the Eliakim thing, scripture is just a bonus there. They give you a big old meta narrative on what the Pope is, and then they have you like flip to your Bible and read this bracketed section, and then you read that bracketed section, and you go, "Oh my gosh, that fit your meta narrative!" And you go, "Exactly." I mean, you can do that thing for for anything. Yeah, the ancient Baptists do it for not gambling and not drinking alcohol, and they'll go to sections that say drink is a strong brawler. They'll tell you a big meta narrative and say um, alcohol is evil. It was built by the devil. It deceived Noah. Um, it's good for nothing. It's a temptation set there to, to for unwilling people or for unknowing people to fall into. Now, quick, flip to Proverbs 31 two, and then you flip there and it goes, oh my gosh, strong drink is a brawler, and then alcohol is evil. Did we all forget the first miracle Jesus ever did? Which is transmute water into wine. He turned wine into water. Which is again, right, you, you, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you need to you need to stick to scripture. Um, and if you you believe something because of the meta narrative, and then the scripture is just a proof text, that's not good enough. Right. Yeah. Speaking of proof te- texting, and also going to the Old Testament, that was another thing Cameron mentioned. Unless you can always no, talk about the both, but let's yeah, let's, let's let's plow through says that this, his his message was that Protestants shy away from the Old Testament. They shy away from like stuff about the Canaanites, the destruction of Canaan and whatnot, or I, mean, I assume other obscene things that happened in the Old Testament. And that in m- most cases, actually, a lot of things atheists bring up are not condoned by God. And it just happens out of the stupidity of the, of the people of the time. And how... They also say he also said that Protestants want to move away from the Old Testament. It's all about the New Testament, which is fair criticism. We have tackled that with 
primarily Andy Stanley is like, let's just throw the Old Testament out the window. Goodness gracious, you wouldn't have Christ without the Old Testament. You wouldn't have fulfillment. You wouldn't have prophecy. You wouldn't have Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew. Did we, did we not get the memo? Mashiach, a Hebrew word. Mm-hmm. Old Testament. Okay. I will not ramble on that, but his point was, Cameron's was, Protestants don't like the Old Testament, in his perspective, don't like the Old Testament. And Catholics, they love to go back, seek connections between the Old and the New. Oh, yes, they do. And sometimes they shouldn't do that for, for many, as some reasons that we discussed, like Mary being Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant or the Pope being Eliakim or whatever other uh, other strange things comes uh, come up with. Um, but this one, so... Lesson to be learned there is is preach the whole Bible wherever you are. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, I think it also is plain that Cameron was going to a bad church because they weren't connecting the Old Testament to the New. Or, or he, he wasn't, wasn't paying attention. Yeah, or he wasn't paying attention exactly. So I don't really know his church, so I can't definitively say whether or not that's the case. So maybe he's just not paying attention. Um, so we as, we as Christians should always connect all of God's word and preach the whole of God's word. Um, I think you're right, Sebastian. It's a fair criticism of the Protestant church because Protestantism is so broad that there are people like Andy Stanley and, and other megachurches that don't connect the two or they specifically want to disconnect both testaments. Um, so we should fight that just as much as we fight any other um, bad practice. However, I think it's entirely unfair to critic- for him to criticize Protestantism and then embrace Catholicism at this point because he's speaking to like theologian weirdos online. Those Catholics connect the Old Testament and they find weird stuff that justifies Mary and the Pope and whatever else. Your regular Catholic church is just as shallow as your regular Protestant church mm-hmm. who, who are, they're reading their little section from Matthew and then they're giving you the bread and saying like, peace out, see ya, thanks for your 15 minute sesh. Like, are we really that is he, does, he, does, he has it, does he have his head so deep in the sand that he doesn't realize there are huge varieties of Catholic churches in the U.S., let alone across the world, on how they, how they preach and what they talk about, and that there is a huge majority of Catholic churches, actual polities, that are super shallow, and they give you a super shallow sermon because the priest has to give a sermon every day sometimes uh, to the three old women that are there, and he has to give some mini-sermonette, and of course he has nothing to say, and often they just read a little section from... And the Psalms and a little section from the Gospels, and that's it. So that's not particularly connecting the Old Testament to the New, in my humble opinion. And if any sermons happen now in a Catholic church, we have the Reformation to thank for that. That was a thing that pushed him. It's like, oh crap, we can't just do the liturgy, speak in Latin, do motions, and then leave. That was a criticism that Luther had that the Italian priests were rushing through the liturgy, just like saying Latin, like, you know. Um, and this is my body and on all the the protocol and then they would just leave to get paid at the next church so they had to do liturgy and then the people would be like just watching pretty much this um the ritual. liturgy the ritual take place mm-hmm. that's the word thank you ritual take place but the part of what the reformation did john calvin luther was no you have to preach out you have to exegete the word of God. You have to feed the flock. The, the flock were literally not being fed. I mean, yes, they were fed with... Actually, no, they were not for a long... We'll talk about the, the Eucharist later, but they were not being fed the Eucharist, most people. I'll save that for later. Another thing, Protestants are tying to the Old Testament. I read from Calvin's Institutes. Highly recommend that book. It's a little bit heavy, but a good read yeah, from John Calvin from Geneva, Switzerland, Reformation. It makes me feel so good. 
when I have some ideas and then someone way smarter than me says the same thing. <laughs> so Justify. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I really like Christophanies, which are appearances of Jesus Christ or Yahweh in the Old Testament. Obviously, they didn't know he was Jesus Christ, like how we know him today. But it's nonetheless Yahweh, God in human form, appearing to Israelites. And the ones that he listed in the institutes line up with the ones that I would live, like the ones in Judges, in obviously in Genesis 2 as well, to Abraham, which was contested when meets the three men. So I was like, yes, respect for myself and for John Calvin too, because we're in sync for that. Yeah. What's, what am I saying? He, draw, he draws back always, always, always to the Old Testament to connect it to the New. So to say that Protestants don't do that, is a very, eh, what do you say, tunnel vision? Yeah, it's, it's blinders. It's illiterate, I would say. It's not really giving Protestantism a fair chance. I mean, had Cameron Bertuzzi interviewed Protestants, like real believing Protestants, I should say, um, strong, convicted Protestants, I think he'd be in a better spot. I mean, who knows, because the Lord is the one who keeps, so it could be that he'd be always on this path. But um, he really only gave his fair time to the opposition. He never really gave time to a real defender of um, Protestantism. So he he set himself up for this kind of conversion. So what's the lesson here to learn is that always look at the strong men of your the positions that you're comparing. So we've said don't don't let meta narratives uh, color your reading of scripture. We've said uh, always read the whole of scripture, the Old Testament and New. And now we're saying don't um, set up a straw man on one side and a strong man on the other. Always set the best competitors on both sides and see who wins out in the end i mean that's just general like logic if you're in-depth philosophy like cameron would be right you always want to give both sides the fair uh, fair shot if you're really really considering conversion yeah. you want to go to protestant john calvin luther charles spurgeon yeah. and more contemporary perhaps john MacArthur would be a good one too and uh, for catholics someone who converted was cardinal newman he was an anglican and converted to catholicism mm -hmm. so he is a very eloquent man uh, for Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, you know, thinking high church. Timothy Ware, he converted from Anglicanism. I'm seeing a trend here. A lot of Anglicans convert. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Just kidding. Uh, that's Just weird. kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. And uh, for Orthodoxy, so you are several popes too from the past. Certain, you want to see their sermons. You want to see the best of Catholicism, papal bulls, stuff I'm quoting, like Unum Sanctum. You actually want to see proper, uh, well thought out documents, the Council of Trent. The what's the for the Baptist Westminster Confession? That's Presbyterians, but yes. Just kidding. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. We talked about this. Uh -huh. One of my confusing all of them. Uh, you want to give it. You want to be very, very well informed. That's the key point you should take away. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not converting, you should still read what the best what they have to say because maybe they're right. Yeah. Who knows? Well, so you're just ready to combat it, right? If they come at you with their best. So mm -hmm. we said, he first said the Pope. That was the thing he did this Bayesian analysis on. Great. Um, really locked tight there. Um, of course, it's not. I think that's a really weak way to do anything, but whatever. Convert on the Pope. Um, and then the bonus material was that he felt like the Catholics were connecting the Old Testament better than the Protestants. I think that's unfair to say because, of course, there's bad Protestants. There's bad Catholics, too. He also said, what else? The idea of confession, but I don't, I don't know if that's worth talking that much about. He, he quoted it. So he said that confession was such a cool idea. So it intrigued him about the Catholic Church. We are to confess sins to one another. Um, I don't really have much to say about that. I mean, right. 
Catholics um, have a regular ritual of confession, and I think part of the problem with their version of confession is the problem with their whole sanctification model, and that is they believe confession is a, is a way of absolving sin, which it's not. So there's that, right? You're actually going to a priest as if he were God or as if he were a mediator to God instead of just going straight to God, and we really should confess. Yes, we should confess to one another so that we can correct each other in sins, um, but it's not for the sake of absolving each other of sins. So if Sebastian comes and confesses to me or I confess to him, that doesn't absolve us of the sins. Only Jesus absolves us. And so the problem with the Catholic model is that um, you're not really confessing to one another. You're really just confessing to your pastor. So you don't tell any of your other church members about your sin. And you think you're absolved because of their weird way of getting saved. Um, and so you also are like, you don't come to God for, for confession. You come to you priest and then you don't even go to your fellows you only go to the priest it's actually a bad form of confession not to say that protestants mm -hmm. don't actively um ignore confession as well uh, but i don't think the catholic model is a good model for confession but in any case i understand the spirit he's saying oh that looks that sounds like jesus's command even though it's not <laughs> got it deep thought yes and he had he said i had a very dry spiritual life and prayer as a protestant any thoughts, any takes from either of you on this? I mean... Well, so I'd add to the part of that and then kind of connect with something you said five minutes ago, <laughs> which was <clears throat> mainly the people he has on his channel. I think people who are Protestants, I don't think he talks about much scripture or theology with them. Mm. I think he talks more philosophical things with... Mm -hmm. Christians, but then when he talks with Catholics, he talks actual beliefs and like apologetics for their beliefs. Right. So I think that's a really a bad way to approach it as well, if you want to approach it even handedly. Yeah, agreed. And then it, that probably speaks to why his spiritual life was dry. It just sounds like he was not with good people, um, not at his church, and not the Protestants he was bringing on. So the, the based people that he was bringing on were all Catholics or other religions, and that's why he kept interviewing them. Um, again, he's not strongmanning his own position. He really should have gotten better people around him, and uh, therefore his dry spiritual life sounds. I mean, it is a personal problem, so it's really just a confessional thing there. Um, I. I would suspect his spiritual life will be even drier in the Catholic Church because as much as smells and bells you might get at a fancy Catholic Church, one that's trying to be as faithful to the Catholic credo as possible, um, you'll be even farther away from God than you are at a crappy Protestant church because even a crappy Protestant church doesn't put the priest in front of you that you have to go through to get to Jesus and then Mary to get to Jesus and Jesus to get to God. You can go straight to God via the mediator Jesus Christ given to everyone, even at your like crappiest Methodist church. So um, talk about a dry spiritual life is one where you have to go through like 30 layers before you can finally get to God. So I, I do not think that will be addressed by the Catholic Church. And it's a cycle because if you fall from the state of grace, you have to go to confession. You have to go to get receive the Eucharist. And if by accident you commit a mortal sin, you a willing sin that you planned out to do well you are now doomed to hell even if you have been going to a catholic church for your entire life up to that point so it is not a straight line it is a hamster wheel yeah. in which and or treadmill that's more to speak and we'll make our our ending closer oh yes, short yes, on this yes episode but that one i mean 
it's not really a Catholic or Protestant thing. He's just confessing his own lack of spiritual belief, which isn't right. surprising, again, considering he was he's converting now. It's not surprising that he wasn't particularly convicted as a Protestant because he never really defended Protestantism. Um, he would always defend it if you watch him carefully, and I watched him a couple times, though I don't really like his channel. Um, I guess offense, Cameron, but I don't really like any of the philosophy channels, so it's not unique to you. Uh, when he would talk about Protestants versus Catholics and have a debate, he would let the Catholic give their speech and they would rail uh, some really strong Catholic position, um, sometimes gently, sometimes not gently. And then Cameron would respond with, well, I believe the the Protestant response to that would be, um, and then he'd give some crappy Protestant, Protestant response, but he, would, it's, he wasn't particularly owning ever the Protestant response. He was as if he was talking about it third party, like if I were a Muslim um, <laughs> on this channel. And I was like, well, what, what a Muslim would say to that is, but like, if I were the Muslim, I should be saying I would say to that that Muhammad is the prophet of God or whatever else. Insert your, your thing you'd say if you were a different religion. So if he was truly a Protestant, he would say, well, my response to that is this instead of saying the theoretical Protestant response to this. So he was always wishy-washy on that. We should just cut that segment of Michael saying Muhammad is the prophet of God. <laughs> <laughs> He's not. <laughs> just kidding. Reverse Shahada. Activate. Okay. Yeah. And what my, my the only thing I could think of is that if you think Protestants have a sad prayer life, that would not be true in the slightest. I've been listening to sermons from Charles Spurgeon that are just so moving about the intercession of the Holy Spirit, exegeting from Romans uh, 8 and 9, how when we are incapable of doing it, the Holy Spirit moves in us to pr uh, pray, and how prayer is being, I mean, I'm modernizing it, it's being in sync with the mind of God, because when you pray and things happen, it means you're praying according to the will of God, which is you are understanding God, not by your own power, but by the intercession of the Holy Spirit. It's powerful. Jonathan Edwards preached on the on the Trinity and how he was moved to tears by contemplating the, the deep love and, and then effect on salvation with the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how they all participate in the redemption, redemption of mankind. So to say that Protestants don't care about prayer or spiritual life is a very, 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 very bad thing and unbased, unbased thing to say. And lesson learned here is that if you are dry in your current spiritual life, um, it could be that you're in the wrong religion, but you may just try the normal steps of addressing dryness in spiritual life, and that is prayer, confession, and like deep, dedicated time to God before you know you throw away the gospel. Or um, learn from the example of others if you don't know where to start. Right, right. And I think there's only one last point that he quoted. Am I right? Yes. Along with prayer, he doesn't have to go to Catholicism to get some sort of ritual or what to do, because even in pages of scripture itself, it tells you how to pray. Jesus himself tells you how to pray. Mm -hmm. And then there are plenty of books by Christians like Prayer Dynamics. Yep. That's a big one for prayer. And then Praying Life, there's a lot of them. Yeah, maybe Celebration of Discipline or a long Obedience mm -hmm. in the Same Direction or something like that. <laughs> I haven't completely read read those but <clears throat> plenty of things talking about christian discipline christian prayer um power of prayer the effects of prayer etc yeah now granted i mean those things sound really boring um i've read <laughs> praying life it's, it's not boring but uh he probably just didn't want to spend the time doing that which i understand i totally understand it mm -hmm. but that's not a reason to convert to Catholicism. that's just like a personal problem you should have addressed outside of that your dynamics isn't boring <laughs> yeah well neither is praying life so i say that it's unfairly. it just sounds like it would be boring okay. 
That's all. It just occurred to me, it might be obvious, but I do want to say sorry for what I said before, was that when I listen to the sermons of these people, it's like someone doing a voice over reading out loud the sermons. So I don't think they had recording back in the in the 1700s. I'm just, just saying, you never know. And I, I do want to say, before we move on to the last point from camera, that I find, speaking for myself, the the liturgy of the Eastern Orthodox Church, it is very well done. It is very, very well thought out. So I can see why something like that would be so attractive to a someone that's born in a low church, maybe a humble Baptist, a humble um, a Methodist church. Or even like a mega church, just because like the party atmosphere is not for everyone. <laughs> yes. Sometimes it looks like it can look like a rock concert. I've been in those churches and like, and to that, I was like, oh, it doesn't really feel like church. To each their own. But there is something different and they do a very good job in the singing, how everything is performed. Not, not the Catholics, not so much for sure. The Eastern Orthodox. However, I would not just abandon the truth of Jesus Christ and how you're saved for the sake of music. Like, well, you're abandoning what's in Christianity to what to get surface level. A beautiful thing about Christianity that's no longer Christianity because they have rejected the gospel. We'll get to that at the end. No. My suggestion, you like how they do the liturgy, just bring the liturgy over to real Christianity. Yeah, minus the garbage parts. I mean, that's what, like, uh, <laughs> I'm not affected by the high church, at least I don't think. I don't know how much I've experienced high church liturgies, but, um, like, high church Anglicans quote the same thing. Mm -hmm. They, like, want all the smells and bells, and so they, they do the smells and bells of the high church Anglicans. Again, things you could have addressed without Catholicism. That's part of the thing here smells and bells and the scrolls and rolls scrolls and rolls all those fat rolls and all those wafers Aiden. um we are we are pressed for time so what i'm going to say here is we planned to say a big section and we're going to summarize it these are all the reasons cameron said he converted i think anybody listening properly oh wait there's one more reason yeah there. i, I was like <laughs> oh my gosh well we're already running pretty long but you can see for the most part, it seems like Cameron converted just because he met good Catholics that he liked and eventually they won him over because he didn't have a strong footing Protestantism. I think that's the general thing. And if you mm -hmm. have friends like that, if you have yourself like that, there are a lot of things that you can do to examine that aren't just trashing um, the Catholic Church or Islam or whatever they're trying to convert to, but instead promoting their, their current supposed religions that they see as truth. Um, that being said... Let's go to his last point so we can fully give his uh and it ties in examination. And it ties in to the wrap up that we had planned on what what happens, what are the consequences and what yeah. he is missing from this. That he stated I'm paraphrasing, he liked the idea that he did not have to figure everything out theologically about the Bible, about God, about doctrine or teaching or beliefs, and you could just surrender that to the interpretation that the church gives. And Matt Fred said something along the lines of, isn't it so liberating that you don't have to figure out everything for yourself? You can just let the church interpret these, this for you. And that sounds all well and good until you start. they start throwing beliefs at you that you don't agree with. Or even they, they disrupt their own beliefs. Like, who do you believe, Pope number one or Pope number two? Who do you believe, Vatican one or Vatican two? Who do you believe? Um, Erasmus or uh, Boniface II. Like th these people contradict each other. So, what is the church's definition? Like, it changes depending on who in the church you're talking to, even now, let alone if you look historically. Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI. Right. So, uh, 
it is it is a burden off yourself to let somebody else do the thinking for you. Um, yes, I, I understand the thought process. The problem is I don't even then think they do a very good job of doing the thinking for you because they've got a lot of competing voices in the Catholic Church. But not only that, it's not good to have somebody else doing the thinking for you. Honestly, if you're an, a non-thinking Protestant, just look up Got Questions and, and get your answers from there. Like, Got Questions <laughs> is a great source. It's not um, authoritatively like the Catholic Church is the end-all be-all for what belief is, but they're going to give you a good answer for the most part on a lot of your questions, and you don't have to do a lot of the thinking for yourself. You listen to what somebody else has to say. Um, it's just as liberating as the Catholic Church um, because the Catholic Church, again, will compete with itself on what they exactly believe. Um, and of course, like Sebastian said, for these philosophical channels, typically, and I don't think he's an exception, Cameron Verduzzi comes up with some being the bonnet idea that I can't quite understand the mystery of how um, we are saved. Like, how is our righteousness imputed to us and yet we aren't perfect yet or blah, 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 and all the typical Christianity philosophical stuff. Um, when you have a quandary like that, when you're thinking mind like that, like Theodore or like Inspiring Philosophy or like any of these thinkers out there, I, of which I'm not, so I, I just have to imagine what it would be like to be a thinker. Um, I just like got questions, answer all my questions. Um, if you have these inquiring things where you are a thinker and you do have problems that sit in your brain for a while, if the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with you, uh, you are at a total standstill because their word is law. Whereas if you are a Protestant or any just, I keep saying Protestant, but whatever, whatever you call a Protestant, really, I mean a believing real Christian, not a Roman Catholic, um, you let scripture speak to itself. So you wrestle with scripture instead of wrestling with the Roman pontiff. And so it is not liberating, it's, it's jailing. You're being jailed to the wills of men instead of scripture, which is a much worse thing to wrestle with. There you go. So those are just reasons. We've gone a lot of time, so I think we are going to put a really quick summary on the implications of this. So those are the reasons he converted. I think we can all relate to those reasons, but it was not a good enough reason to convert to Catholicism. Of course, there never will be because it is not the gospel. The main problem with Roman Catholicism is that it strips the gospel of its power. Roman Catholics say you are saved by Jesus Christ's blood and your works. And if you don't do good works, you are damned to hell, you're damned to purgatory, and have to work it off. It's a, the exact same message that the Judaizers gave to the early church, saying that you are saved through Jesus Christ and obedience to the law. And so you should still get circumcised and still keep uh, the Sabbath and still keep um, kosher. And Paul explicitly refutes this and says that if you try to keep the law as a means to salvation and Jesus Christ, you have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen from faith. It's from Galatians 3. You can look it up yourself. The problem with the Roman gospel is exactly that. They say that if you believe in faith without works or faith saving you as opposed to the work saving you, you are wrong. They say you're anathema. You're fallen from the church. And that kind of salvation is not true. It's a mixing of sanctification and justification. And as you said many times in this podcast before, not only is that uh, not scriptural, it's dangerous and damning because when you trust in your own works, even if just a little bit, you are no longer trusting in Jesus Christ and you are not saved. Um, you're a goat amongst the sheep. So do not fall for the Roman gospel. It's not just a different sect of Christianity. It is an entirely different gospel and it will not save you in the end. That's principally why we are so against Roman Catholicism and why we're so against this supposed conversion from Cameron, and we pray that he comes back quickly to the actual church or converts for real to Christianity and so not going to Catholicism. 
But there are many other implications besides the core gospel that he'll probably run into that he didn't think about. We've already seen some on the live stream, actually, um, of things that he didn't think about, all the baggage that come with the Roman Catholic Church. Sebastian's got a list. I know you have a list, Theodore, so let's let you guys um, list out a bunch of things that come with being Roman Catholic that are not good. You go, Theodore. I have my, I'll rant later. Um, I can probably just let you take it. All right. Um, I'll go. Maybe I just wanted to read uh, Romans 4 on faith and works. Do it. Do it. Um, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of, of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. AKA our works again are for a wage or a reward. It's uh, and you get paid what you're due. Um, but again, uh, justification, faith, righteousness is grace. And then further in chapter four, um, verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. And you'll notice, Period. but there's a comment. But. Yeah. And so thank you for quoting scripture as we were just talking about scripture, because there's your scriptural basis for what we believe. It's not just, I say so, theater says so, the scripture says that and end all over. It's not just in Romans 4, but you'll notice that in Cameron's conversion story, he doesn't quote anything about salvation. And that's the core of the issue. Nothing about, about, um, predestination and nothing about salvation, which is what Luther said was the core of the Reformation. We would agree is the core of the Reformation. It's why we separate from the Catholic Church. We don't separate because of smells and bells. We don't even separate because of the Pope or confession or high liturgy or whatever else. We, we separate specifically because of justification versus um, sanctification, the mixing of it or the separation of those two. And he mentioned none of it in this conversion. So that tells you that I don't think he has a grasp of the actual gospel and therefore he's been deceived into a false gospel and didn't even think to talk about it. So that, again, we would say is the main problem with converting to Roman Catholicism. But Sebastian, you have a big list of other yes. things he hasn't thought about. Yes. Let's, I will hammer it down again just because this is important. You can see, Theodore, you quoted, this is the man to whom the Lord will not count against him sin to whom in other words, who will not impute sin, will not charge sin against you. I alluded to before, in the Catholic system, if you commit a mortal sin, God can still charge more sin against you and you will end up in hell. So the idea of non-imputation of sin is something that the Protestants highlighted because it comes from the Bible, from what we just read in Romans. And the Council of Trent in 1545 said, if anyone says that men are justified, either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in the hearts by the Holy Ghost, a.k.a. your efforts and works, and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Anathema means you are cast out of the kingdom, you are going straight to hell. So they... High stake. These are the high stakes. Yeah. So this was what the Reformation was about. And so many Catholics battle us on that. Shrug. Why? Because isn't this the whole reason we fight and are separated? Um, 
we had the debate that never was the big debate that we did that the audio didn't work and i'm so sad it always embarrasses me poor guy sorry if you're, you're watching um brother uh neighbor i guess not really brother in any case um <laughs> considering what we're talking about today um but the the catholics fight us all this time on this and catholics will always say oh we don't believe that your works justify you but they do and at the end of the day they I don't even know how else to say it. Sebastian just quoted the Council of Trent. Modern day Catholics also hold to it, and they will. Like, if you press them on it, they'll say, including the guy in the debate we did, that works are necessary for salvation. Um, but for whatever reason, when you put it in such a succinct summary, they go, no, 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 no. They want to give you a four paragraph version of that same phrase. Um, but in any case, that's the separation problem, and that's what Cameron was not anticipating, it sounds like, when he converted to Roman Catholicism. Nor the hyperveneration of Mary, such as the we probably it's not even aware about that they believe mary was immaculately conceived so she was born without sin which leads to a chain reaction problem which if mary was sinless wouldn't her parents have to be sinless and their parents and their parents and their parents? whatever probably but needs they to read reverse future justification it's just like the saints of day sebastian that's what they say and did we get that from the bible no okay moving on <laughs> <laughs> the assumption of Mary that she was carried into heaven and it, this was called to be a, a oh I reveal oh yeah I should just read this from 1950 by the authority of the, our Lord Jesus Christ of the blessed apostle Peter and Paul and by our own authority we pronounce declare and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma revealed dogma that the immaculate mother of God the ever virgin Mary having completed the course of her earthly life was assumed taken up body and soul into heavenly glory wow. and forever makes intercession for <laughs> the saints and us uh, yes and did we Just find it in the bible Jesus. nope okay oh. but it is dogma because it's the church's teachings i'm so glad they're doing the, the thinking for you because they have extra biblical stuff you would not have known had you not known the church so true it's a side note revealed dogma oh yeah so you mean people didn't believe this before right they did not this is a new belief a new invention that's not based on and it's straight up deifying mary blah it's gross yes and papal infallibility that the pope cannot err when he speaks of out of his throne the ex cathedra which is so 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 the pope is always the pope he never ceases to be pope so whenever he speaks you should take that seriously and if he says if he commits blasphemy like pope francis you know saying an atheist will end up in heaven i don't know if that's blasphemy but this honors god nonetheless yeah you... it's just a lie yeah <laughs> well it's not even it's not even inc it's incongruent with catholic dogma so yes this papal infallibility thing um disproves itself when you have a pope like pope francis who is the current pope so all the more bad that you convert now when the pope is so bad yeah yes some of the stuff that pope francis has said would have had him burn at the stake just a few hundred years ago by past popes and not to mention, speaking of the Pope, did we miss the mem did we not get the memo about all the anti popes that have been in throughout history or the assassination of popes? Or we talked about embarrassing pope moments, the cadaver synod in which an old pope was dug out from his grave by the current pope and they put him on trial, the, 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 the corpse, the body, and they threw him on the river and then, they did, and then they buried him and then they did it again because they just hated the guy so much for Pope Formosus. So, um, I like that reaction. And <laughs> that. <laughs> Dead Pope on trial? Okay. Yeah. Or the time in which there was a schism, a three-way a three, three -way schism, Pisa, Rome, and Avignon, the Avignon papacy. There were two people claiming to be the one true vicar of Christ. Did, he, did Cameron take note of that? 
I don't think so because it probably should have been brought up. But I think he actually, he did not know that because when he had an interview with James White, he said, James White asked ask him, do you hear about the Avignon papacy? No, what's that? And then James White's like, faceplant, goodness gracious. Yeah. That for a, all, almost 100 years, I think it was more than that, the Avignon papacy, there was two popes, one in Avignon, France, and one in Rome. Try to fix that. Some other guy came up in Pisa. There were three popes. Countries did not know what to do. Terrible mess. They got rid of them all three. They resigned, and then they elected a new one. And then they burned Jan Hus, which was a proto-reformer. At the stake, it was in 14, 14, 15, 14, 14, 14, 15, around there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And on the note of Jan Hus, we loved, don't Catholics just love the Eucharist? Well, you couldn't if you were born back then and you were not either a noble or a priest because the main thing that Jan Hus was criticizing besides Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, to her teaching doctrine, was that you only priests and nobles could consume the Eucharist because they were, the Catholic priests were so afraid that a, that a poor farmer, who's so clumsy apparently, is going to drop the Eucharist in the ground and dishonor the literal body of Jesus Christ by throwing it on the floor. So he's got to look that up. So like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I understand. That was actually the reasoning. Yes, yes. And so, so they even withheld the Eucharist. And that was a development on the, well, when you just go back in time, the Eucharist. That was codified in Roman teaching in 1215 at the Lateran Council. It ha it's not something that the church has always believed. They believe in the Eucharist transubstantiation, pretty much, they're connected, is that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ when the priest says the pronounces the liturgy, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body. And that it absolves you of sin by consuming it incrementally so like yeah so when you consume it your latest sins have been absolved and that's why you need to regularly take it and those who don't regularly take the mass have a sin problem because they keep building up more sin without absol absolving it which is a, a, a addition to the rejection of the gospel so not only is the rejection of the gospel saying you need works but this work of the mass um is a, a perpetual need for Jesus, meaning that he didn't fully pay for sins, which again is a rejection of the gospel in and of itself. So that in and of itself, not mentioned by Cameron, at least on camera, uh, for his reasons for converting and his core to the differences mm -hmm. between Protestants and Catholics. So he, he ignored all these things. We can keep going on forever about the weird things that Catholics do that he didn't know about. I think just to call him out, good for him that he went to somebody like James White, a renowned protestant scholar who's anti-catholic and showed him some of the errors of his ways but if you note and if you watch that interview with them both um cameron is super passive and defends catholicism when he's supposedly a protestant and doesn't know anything that james white is talking about as far as like the negatives against catholicism which tells you that he never really encountered the counterpoints to catholicism before and at the same time he was defensive about it and tweeted afterwards all the defenses of catholicism afterwards <laughs> He was on this road for a while, if you can tell. That was when, again, he was supposedly Protestant. Um, so we'll cut it off here just because we're super long into our, our episode. But long story short, we have followed Cameron Bertuzzi. We're jumping on the train just to say it is bad that he converted. It should not be taken lightly. Um, doesn't mean you harass him. We're not trying to harass him. We pray that he comes back to a true faith. And we pray for his family, especially because what a difficult time it is, especially if he's underwater um, money-wise, like he said. Um, we don't wish 
financial ruin on anybody, um, especially when they need to provide for their household and it affects so many people who haven't done the same sin. Um, but it is a sinful conduct that he's done in converting to Roman Catholicism. Um, not to say that he was ever a Christian, perhaps he was not a true Christian beforehand, um, but in in, in any case, there he is being a, a proselytizer for the false church. So we're not going to give him slack there. He is now proselytizing for a false gospel. And we, we believe that false gospel damns billions of people on earth to this day. So we don't stand for it. And we call you at home to found your cause in the true Lord Jesus Christ. Not through a priest and not through a false gospel, but the true Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Any wrap-up words from you two men before I fully wrap this up? Yes, <laughs> quickly, I will say it. As a caveat to all of this, we are not just anti, uh, against anti-Catholics. We are against the teachings and doctrines of the Catholic Church. And, for example, would be someone like Matt Fred, who is a very well-informed guy, he, talking to Cameron, I would say he understands these things very well. I would say he's aware of the information that I've cited. And by the fact that he understands and embraces those Catholic teachings... He is not part of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, as a caveat to all of this, any person who is just happens to go to a Catholic church and identifies just casually with being Catholic, that person could very well maybe a Christian, but that is in spite of all these terrible hurdles that like it's like throwing food at people. Mm -hmm. The Catholic church is like trying to stop people from being saved. You can be saved. There are, by the grace of God, I hope there are millions and millions of Roman Catholics that don't know any better but actually trust in Jesus Christ alone and are not informed, thankfully, on the Council of Trent or the stuff about Mary and uh, co-redemptrix, more stuff, more stuff about that too. So our call is to realize, it's like, oh, these people are preaching something very different than what is was given to us on the Word of God. And what we must do is to turn just to the Word alone trust that the Holy Spirit can and has provided in proper interpretation of the scripture because it was, he is God and it is God breathed. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf and we can have true peace with God, not through any system of hamster wheel or treadmills, but through the intercession of Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen. Yeah, and I'll double up on that. We we love Catholics. Um, it's potential that they're brothers and sisters that are still in the Catholic system, but we pray that you come out of it because if you go deeper into that system, you'll find all the obstacles you have to real faith, and those who are caught in the system fully um, are not saved, and we say that definitively. So those who fully embrace the Catholic system are not saved. Um, you could say similar things about Mormonism, I suppose, but I think Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are in unique situations in which they used to preach the gospel and now don't. So there are these relics of of good churches amongst a very bad um, global church. So that being said, we will not shy away from critiquing the places where Catholicism needs to be critiqued. And we pray someday that the apostate church comes back into the fold. But until then... I've been Michael, the man behind the machine. And to my right has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And virtually across the way, our philosophizer from across the Twin Cities, it's... Theodore, under the PC. And he's under the PC, indeed. When we come back next time, you will find us talking about another five reasons we are not, 
and this time it's going to be Catholic because <laughs> we're on a roll, baby. Um, but until then, you can find us on podbean.com forward slash, or yeah, podbean.com forward slash found causes where you download all of our audio episodes if you're a freak like that and like to listen to us offline. But if you want to go online, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash found cause. We're also on YouTube. You can see our lovely faces. Unfortunately, I'm not great at editing, and so there won't be any camera Bertuzzi uh, montages in the background of this episode. So you can look them up in your own time. Until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.